It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, part three of our history of political data in the United States. You may remember that earlier this year, around the time of the New Hampshire primaries, which feels like forever ago, doesn't it? I spoke with Daniel Kreese, political scientist at the University of North Carolina. He walked us through about 150 years of how political data has been used in U.S. elections. Some really fascinating, deep history about what data collection looked like in the 1850s, all the way through direct mail, TV targeting, and the Obama team's data efforts in 2008 and 2012. At the time, I told Daniel we'd check back in throughout the election, and now that the primaries are basically over, this feels like a good moment to see what we've learned. And it kind of feels like the last six months had as much going on as the previous 150 years combined. One of the things I learned in our first conversation was that data is just part of a larger infrastructure. It's not just this fancy tool. The data advantage that Democrats have built over the last couple election cycles and Republicans had before that has to do with hiring analysts, sending more people into the field, having a bigger budget for these efforts, basic human resource stuff. Hillary Clinton learned from the Obama team, and on the GOP side, Ted Cruz was thought to have had the biggest commitment to data. And that's the context in which we entered the 2016 primaries. So I'll let Daniel Kreese pick it up from there. Uh, One of the things that I think we saw during this election cycle was a continued pattern on the Democratic side of the aisle of uh, their candidates making significant investments in the areas of technology, uh, digital media, more broadly, data, uh, analytics, staffers, the party sort of ramping up their operations in these areas. Um, Compared with fewer investments on the Republican side of the aisle, at least when you look in terms of the campaign organizations, et cetera. Um, And now by the time that you get to the general election, Um, I think one of the most striking things that we've seen is just the vast differences between the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Donald Trump campaign when it comes to basic campaign organizations and the ways that that spills over into um, technology, data and and analytics, um, which are really at the bedrock of contemporary campaigning. It's interesting that you kind of put it that way. So it's almost like data is a nice proxy. In addition to being important, it's also a nice proxy for just kind of like the larger investment in a lot of the infrastructure elements that go into a successful modern campaign. And I do want to talk about the GOP. And I think a lot of the more interesting storylines are there, not just with Trump, but with other candidates as well. But quickly on the on the Democratic side, you talked about how all this infrastructure was in place. Is your sense generally that the Clinton campaign took advantage of that existing infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, um, as far as we know from from public reporting, and I think a lot of this will be clear after the election cycle, you know, um, Senator Clinton's campaign has hired um, over 700 staffers. Um, She has hired a lot of talent uh, that came out of the Obama uh, 2012 reelection campaign, but also people who were active in the party doing things like modeling, doing things like database work, um, stretching all the way back to 2008. Um, So they really seem to have been drawing on the resources um, that exist within the extended Democratic Party network, um, firms that are involved in doing this sort of work, the core voter file of the Democratic Party, um, the field tools that are offered by firms such as NGP Van for accessing it, um, you know, and as did Sanders, um, again, from, from early prime 
primary reporting, we know that, you know, there were some controversies that arose over data breaches. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that means that everyone was bought into the same system. Um, everyone every, <laughs> cared about data. If you're trying to, that's exactly if you're right. trying to steal or poke around into data, then you're, that means you care about that it. That means you, right. That means you care about it. And, and you actually, you have people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important to also note is that campaigns generate a lot of data over the course of the yeah. election cycle. So, you know, when Bernie Sanders's campaign or Hillary Clinton's campaign, you know, open field offices, what that means is um, thousands of volunteers who are knocking on the doors of voters and asking them questions like, are they registered to vote? Um, and if they're not giving them voter registration information, it means people going door to door to ask which candidate they might be supporting and why, what issues are important to them, um, uh, asking them where their polling locations are, asking them to create a plan for uh, election days so that they would be more likely to go ahead and turn out to vote. Um, that's what that means. And ultimately, that generates data at the end of the day that then um, will benefit the uh the general election bid of the ultimate Democratic nominee who who turns out to be Hillary Clinton. Um, I think one of the differences that you saw on the Republican side of the aisle was that, you know, Ted Cruz, at least again, in terms of public reporting, um, had a large field infrastructure in place when he was contesting bids and working to get people out to polls. And that was generating data. Um, but you know, Donald Trump seems to have pursued very much a mass media first strategy. Yeah. So let me just let me just ask that, because because I think, as you were saying, one of the main things I came away from our first conversation with was this notion that data is not just like it's not just about how good your software is or how many coders you have. Uh, it's not a, it's not a tool. It's a sort of ongoing project of building information. Yeah. So is your sense. Do you have any sense of whether Donald Trump cared at all about gathering data and building data throughout the primary process? So with the caveat that, you know, all of my knowledge of this comes from from public reports mm -hmm. um, as well as the FEC, you know, filings that we've seen. No, um, you know, we I think the general consensus is that um, Trump never put in place a large scale field infrastructure. You know, that means that there's just not a lot of people who are staffing field offices. There's not a lot of people who are doing modeling. Um, there's not a lot of people who are managing voter files. But help me en envision what a Trump data strategy would have looked like in the in the primary, even like taking as a given that maybe he doesn't care or value um, traditional media buys and maybe that he doesn't care or value even, you know, knocking on doors or phone banking. But Let's just say that those things aren't important and you proved that those things aren't important, at least to get through a primary. But what would it have looked like to have a data first strategy, say, for the thousands and thousands of people who show up at a Trump rally? Uh, like what could he have done even within the context of his unorthodox campaign? Yeah. So, I mean, just to give you some uh, some examples of sort of what this would look like. I mean, first of all, you would create field offices, um, you know, to, to contest primary states and you would be running a, a volunteer operation and paid staffer operation that's going to be going door to door. <laughs> Um, on the basis of some sort of voter file that you bought into. Um, so, you know, that could be the RNC's uh, voter file as well as the field tools that it makes available. Um, so you would buy into that and you would um, use analytics staffers to create some sort of model for who your Trump supporter might be, um, who might be persuadable. And you would send people out into the field on the basis of that information um, to go make contact um, and uh, to go try to figure out 
which which candidate is this support is this voter um, supporting? What issues do they care about? Do they have a plan to get to the polls? How do we mobilize them on election day? All the things that it seemed like the you know the Ted Cruz campaign really put together. Um, mm-hmm. So so that's one key piece of the of, of the puzzle. I think um, the other things that you would that you would kind of look for um, is that you know when Trump was holding these these really massive rallies that you would be wanting to capture the names and the email addresses of every. Everyone in attendance um, that you would then be following up with them uh, via email to try to get them to volunteer. Um, you would be sending out emails for things like fundraising. But why does an email list matter more than his millions and millions of Twitter followers and Facebook and all the other ways that he's able to reach voters? Well, I mean, I think when you talk to campaign practitioners, one of the things that they would that they continually cite is that email is still one of the most basic and most important pieces of infrastructure for a campaign. Um, email is the the easiest way to get a message in front of a defined group of people. Um, email is the easiest way that you can make repeated asks to people. And the other thing that you can do with email is that you can much more directly test messages, right? So um, you can engage in things like A-B testing where, you know, you're varying content, uh, you're varying recipients, you're varying the times of day that you're sending email to try to increase the likelihood that people are going to take the actions that you want them to take, whether that's signing How up How do we know volunteer. Trump's not doing, you know, one exclamation point versus two exclamation point a b testing you never know you you never know but again again i mean i i saw that yesterday um you know he sent out his first uh, uh fundraising email so yeah my sense is he's not and and i have to say this carries through and just you know i'll give a shout out to um you know the students in my um presidential campaigns in the age of social media class that i taught at unc who were tracking all the candidates and looking at their email list their social media presences, their websites, their even their online stores. Um, and one of the things that they consistently found was um, that Trump lagged far behind of his opponents um, in things like sending solicitation emails, um, in things like, you know, setting up an online store and running a sophisticated operation. Um, I, and, and that pretty much ran throughout the campaign. But again, accords with all the things that we're seeing now in FEC filings, where he just doesn't really have the staff for the campaign infrastructure Um, But it is a labor-intensive practice. Modern campaigning is a labor-intensive practice. You know, again, Hillary has, you know, approximately 700 campaign staffers. Um, That's pretty sizable. So uh, let's sort of tie a ribbon on the what we've seen so far in the primary, and then we'll move forward into kind of what we expect in the general. But going to the Democratic side, is your sense that Bernie Sanders at all of his rallies um, and throughout his campaign, even though he didn't get the nomination, was doing kind of a lot of that data work that maybe Donald Trump wasn't doing with similar big crowds and social media presence and so forth? Um Yes. I mean, I think that one of the stories that have that have come out about the 2016 primaries is is that, you know, the Sanders team used a lot of their digital tools to engage in electoral organizing. Um, And when I say organizing, I mean um, inspiring volunteers to go out and make contacts and bring people into the campaign, um, solicit other people, try to create them into leaders. They used they use volunteer created tools. They use professionally available tools. Um, but I think that one of the things that they really tried to do was to 
organize people to vote for Sanders um, and to spread their message. And frankly, I think that's one of the reasons why um, they were really sort of as successful running a primary campaign against a very strong front runner at the start of the season um, as they were, is that they used digital and social media as a way to organize people um, to get them out, to fuel his amazing fundraising and, and to spread the candidate's message. Right. So mm-hmm. it's not just about the candidate, although the candidate's important and it's not just about the message, although the message is really important. Um, it's also about the ways in which they translated the energy and the enthusiasm around the candidate and around the message into electoral resources like volunteers um, and organizers who are going out and sort of doing this work uh, on their own. Traditional work, as much as we think of the Sanders campaign as being insurgent or forging a new uh, path or being viral or whatever, it's actually still going back to a lot of these traditional methods that probably the Clinton campaign was using as well. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that, you know, one of the one of the hallmarks of of democratic technology really over the last um, decade has been to use tools in a way to figure out how to bring the online together with the offline. Right. How do you bring the online, the, the social media and how do you translate that into the very stringent demands of the electoral system? Right. Where certain states are in play at certain times during primaries where certain states are battlegrounds during general elections. So you take this international medium of the internet, right, where things go viral and uh, things are ephemeral, but how do you translate that into votes on election day is a really tough problem to solve. Okay, so so help me kind of think through a dynamic that exists right now with the caveat that Bernie Sanders, when we're recording this, is still in the race, and who knows when we air this what will happen because it's sort of a moving story. But right now, there's this moment where uh, – Hillary Clinton is the presumptive nominee. Bernie Sanders is still in the race, says that he wants to advance his issues, says he's going to go to the convention. The Clinton campaign and the DNC is kind of just taking, I don't know, it feels like they've taken a step back and just said, okay, that's fine. Take your time. I mean, I'm sure they're pressuring them behind the scenes, but like, I feel like the thing they want to, to be saying is we want your email list. It's like we want your list and we want your data. And so how much of a dynamic is that right now and how much is that actually what matters for the Democratic Party with regards to the Sanders campaign? Uh, um, that is a, a great question. Um, so let me say this. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders' email list is is ultimately a immensely valuable uh, strategic electoral resource. Um, I think that uh, Bernie Sanders has brought a lot of uh, new people into the Democratic Party, uh, particularly younger voters, um, and he certainly got them excited and engaged um, in being uh, part of electoral politics and part of the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think that's a mix of both who Bernie Sanders is as a candidate, as sort of an op an oppositional outsider insurgent candidate uh, to the the Democratic Party's uh, more institutional candidate. And part of it, it's about his message, um, which appeals clearly to a progressive wing of, of the Democratic Party. Um, I think uh, that there's sort of um, a broad sense that, you know, Sanders has sort of 
excited um, and and brought new folks uh, into the party with with his message. Um, and I think that one of the things that the Clinton campaign is going to want to do is figure out a way of how do you excite those same voters? Um, how do you make sure at the end of the day that they are aware of the stark choice between the Democratic and Republican nominees come November? Um, so I think that, you know, probably what the Clinton campaign wants to do uh, is unify the party and an important tool in being able to unify that party, um, again, is sort of the Sanders email list. Um, now, a lot of the data on like volunteers and activists and the volunteer activities that they took um, will live with the DNC uh, at the end of the primaries um, and ultimately be something that d- uh, Democratic candidates up and down ballot can draw on. Wait, are you, but are you saying that there's like some sort of uh, contract that a c- campaigns have to hand over their data at the end or could, in theory, a Sanders campaign or, you know, a any other campaign who was who that that no longer exists just hold on and not hand it over. So my understanding is that within the Democratic Party, uh, the data that they generate uh, through canvases, so those door knocks and all those contacts, as well as data on volunteers um, who volunteered for a campaign, um, that is ultimately data that gets shared back with the Democratic Party um, in exchange for using the Democratic Party's voter file mm-hmm. uh, as well as vote builder. Um, It is my understanding that data, however, on donors, as well as a candidate's email list, that is proprietary data that stays with the candidate. And one other thing you just said brings up something that's kind of been a bit of a pet peeve of mine with regards to the Sanders-Clinton dynamic, which is you hear a lot of people saying like, oh, Bernie should drop out and tell his supporters to go follow Clinton, which I just think is really you know, almost uh, offensive to Bernie Sanders and his supporters to think that they're just like these drones that will follow wherever he goes. And so what you're saying with regards to the email list is that like Clinton needs to make a case to these voters. And one way you do that is through the email list, but it's like, it's on her to win them over. You're exactly right. I mean, right. That's the great thing about democracy, right? Is that you can't just tell people what to do. (laughs) And, you know, and at the end of the day, it comes down to telling a story of the election that frames that frames the choices that voters will have uh, before them in November um, in ways that get people excited to pull the lever for a Democratic candidate. And I think that Hillary needs to do that. I think that, you know, if Bernie Sanders um, cares about a progressive agenda, it is pretty clear that he is also going to be making the case, just like Howard Dean did in 2004, um, just like Hillary Clinton did in 2008. And I've been thinking of Howard Dean a lot throughout this process, watching the Democratic dynamic, um, mostly because of what we talked about in our first conversation, uh, which kind of reinforced for me the idea of Howard Dean as like the unsung hero of data and politics, even as someone who didn't, you know, become the yeah, candidate, as that's someone right. who really advanced data efforts. Um, and so I think it's it's interesting to see if, if the Sanders dynamic will play out in, in, in a similar way. Well, I think and, and one of the things that I think you saw was, you know, Sanders called on on his supporters to get involved in races for local office. Um, you know, I think that that idea of sort of replenishing uh, and reviving the Democratic Party at the grassroots, bringing new people into run, run for local races, the races that don't get a lot of attention, um, that aren't necessarily the most exciting, but that are so central to governance and so central to local and state policy that affects so many lives is, you know, really a, a noble thing for Sanders to, to do. 
back to more about data in the 2016 election in a minute. But first, What's the Point is brought to you by the Black Tux. The Black Tux is the best way to get quality crafted Italian wool suits and tuxedos for any wedding or special event rented to you right online. It is indeed wedding season, and if you've ever had to be part of a wedding party, you know that coordinating outfits can be a real hassle. You have to find a store, try to visit at the same time with your group, go back and forth for fitting and measurements. Well, the Black Tux makes that whole process really easy. All you have to do is visit theblacktux.com and select from complete looks or build your own piece by piece. I'm looking at the site right now, and obviously they have black tuxes, but also gray suits, a tan suit, if you think you can pull that off. There's ties of every color and fabric to match your suit with. I happen to like those knit square bottom ties myself. You fill out your measurements online, what kind of fit you like. You can even call them up and get style advice. And after you've built your outfit, your suit arrives a week or so before your event. When you're all done, you just put the suit back in the box and ship it to the Black Tux. Shipping is free both ways. So check it out. Visit theblacktux.com point. Make sure you enter theblacktux.com point to get started and so that they know this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the show. You mentioned all the efforts throughout the primary, especially on the Democratic side in different states. Is there like a dynamic of kind of wasted data gathering efforts because you have to contest the primary in a state that is, you know, deeply red and is probably going to go to the Republican candidate if you're on the Democratic side to the Republican candidate anyway in the fall, but you have to put in this effort and do the voter file work and so forth in, say, Alabama or Mississippi or, or Louisiana. Is there, are, so are there like wasted data efforts there? No, uh, nothing is ever wasted. Um, and, and in part, it's because within the Democratic Party, all those voter contacts that are generated are then made available to candidates who are down ballot and candidates in future election cycles. Mm -hmm. And this is why the two Obama runs are so important. The two Obama runs in 2008 and 2012 generated millions of data points uh, on the electorate just through field canvassing alone. And the important thing is that that then enriched the Democratic Party's voter file, which gives them better data to use in those races and for other candidates to be able to take advantage of and draw on. Um, at the same time is that every time you make voter contact, you generate information information on that voter, but in ways that you help that can help you discern larger patterns about the electorate and other voters who might be like them. Right. So if you talk to a voter uh -huh. in, let's say, North Carolina, which is a swing state uh, during a primary and you learn that, you know, um, they might be a, a married mother of of two who who cares passionately about reproductive rights um, as well as education. You know, they were they were undecided during the primary campaign. Well, you learn something about that voter and something about what sorts of messages might appeal to them, um, something about the things that they care about that then you can use in the general election. Um, and then future Democratic candidates can go back to and sort of say, look, we know um, that in the past you said that education and reproductive rights are really important to you. Um, this is why we're better than our opponent on this issue, you know, if they're running in 2018. Okay, let's move to the general election. And I guess the most notable storyline with regards to data was basically Donald Trump telling the RNC, I don't want your data. I don't need your data help. But I, like, I feel like I kept reading that headline and didn't actually get a sense of what that actually 
means. So what is he actually not taking advantage of? Okay, so so this is where I will um, sort of slip into speculation mode. Yeah, which most of the articles I read did too. But uh, you know, I'd rather have you speculating than someone else. I, right. I don't know how much we're ever going to know about what exactly is going on until the end of the um, until the end of the uh, election, right? So afterwards, mm-hmm. I think through a lot of careful reporting and academic work, we'll be able to sort of discern what exactly happened. But but what I think. Uh, Donald Trump is is saying is that basically he's outsourcing his his field campaign to the RNC um, and saying that that the RNC should be directing his on the ground and his field efforts. Um, and basically what that means is that it's the Republican Party that's going to be setting up field offices, putting volunteers and paid staffers into the field, um, using the data that they have, um, as well as the data that they're generating to um, generate models of who's likely to be supporting Republican candidates um, and um, ultimately basing their turnout strategy and their persuasion strategies on the basis of that. And I think the key distinction here is that it's the RNC that's going to be running this field effort, Mm -hmm. this political effort versus a candidate centric operation. Right. Which is what the Hillary Clinton campaign appears to be putting together and which the Obama campaign put together in 2008 and 2012. Now, the key difference there is that the Republican effort is at the end of the day concerned with electing Republican candidates all the way from, you know, the House all the way up to the Senate. Right. So the Republican Party has to serve many different masters, not just the presidential nominee. Right. So all the modeling that goes into it, the electoral strategy has to be taken um, with the ends of the party more generally in mind and not simply who's at the top of the ticket. Whereas a Clinton run strategy can focus just on what is best for electing her to to be president. But it also brings up something that, again, was one of the main takeaways from our first conversation, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, but this idea that the way that you use data, it's not just a tool to get you across, uh, you know, to win you an election in this particular cycle, but it's an ongoing process. And so I think that by Donald Trump not contributing in this cycle to that ongoing process, obviously it has implications for his chances of getting elected, but it has these much broader implications, if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, for the next cycle and the cycle after that and just the ongoing process of building a voter file for the Republicans. I think one of the, the larger dynamics of this race is that um, – the Trump campaign's failure um, to raise significant amounts of resources to build up a campaign infrastructure as well as a, um, a field infrastructure ultimately at the end of the day uh, means a couple of really important things going forward. First of all, it means just fewer staffers with presidential campaign experience um, who are used mm-hmm. to who are used to working with data, who are used to coordinating field efforts, uh, who are used to managing and organizing uh, volunteers, um, and who at the end of the day are used to doing things like experimental testing to figure out which messages work, uh, etc. So um, one of the things that I that I track in my book is that you know it's the Obama campaign 
campaign in 2008 and 2012, hired enormous amounts of staffers, um, 342 in the 2012 race alone in the areas of technology, digital data and analytics, um, who not only came from political backgrounds, but also places like, you know, commercial industry who then stayed to work in politics. And what did they do? Well, they founded lots of firms. Um, so 67 um, from from the years of tw- uh, 2004 on to um, uh, 2014. Um, so they founded their own firms to house the innovations of these campaigns and then carry them to other races and down ballot. Um, but more generally, they also went to go work for other campaigns. Um, they they are now working for the Hillary Clinton campaign, as well as Senate races, uh, House races. Um, so up and down ballot. Um, it's a dynamic that will have ripple effects. Um, and again, because elections don't exist in vacuums, um, but because they are shaped by historical currents um, and institutions ultimately are built up over time, as well as data and technological infrastructure is built up over time. Um, one of the things that means is that this will hurt GOP candidates uh, in elections to come. And for context, one anecdote that I just find totally fascinating, um, Joshua Dar, who's a political scientist who thinks about some of the same things that that you do. Yeah, Josh is great. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a piece for 538 um, about sort of Trump and data. And, and he pointed out that even the Goldwater campaign, which, you know, was pretty big electoral disaster, but even that campaign generated data on 27 million uh, very conservative Americans. And that helped the RNC in future elections. So you can kind of advance on the data front, even if you get walloped in the polls. That's exactly right. Um, and, and, you know, just the, you know, the other example is, you know, Howard Dean, right, getting completely walloped, um, you know, during the primaries in 2004, but in the process, like doing a lot of really technologically innovative work. Okay, so one last question then back on the Democratic side. You know, one of the things I think we discussed in our first conversation was um, looking at the history of, of data and the way campaigns have used it. Coming off of the Bush years, Republicans kind of maybe had a little bit of a sense of complacency because they had a data advantage. And then in 2008 and then in, again in 2012, the Democrats were able to – gain a foothold and then in 2012 you 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 mentioned something that's sort of been rattling in my head that like that was an election that republicans really felt like they should have won and really came out of it thinking okay we have a data disadvantage so do you think that there's a chance that democrats particularly you know coming off of two obama victories and then facing an opponent that is I think safe to say unconventional and potentially one that that they see as an easier opponent. Is there a chance that Democrats get complacent in this cycle? I would say no. Um, I, you know, I, I think that Hillary's team is pretty seasoned. I do think at the end of the day, um, Hillary's team faced a really strong challenge from Bernie Sanders. Um, And I think any riding on their coattails of a, a presidential front runner that, that, you know, 
perhaps might have been there at the beginning of the race, and I don't know, um, certainly would would have, uh, I mean, I think shaken them to the core in terms of not taking anything for granted. And, and again, I mean, you don't build a, a campaign organization with 700 staffers um, if you're if you're taking this lightly, um, nor do you. And I think this was quite extraordinary that we saw, too, is that the Clinton campaign is already running ads um, in, in battleground states. And, you know, as was reported again by NBC News has a hundred percent spending edge in ads in key battleground states over Trump because they're not running ads um, at this point. Yeah, I have actually a hundred percent spending edge over Donald Trump in key battleground uh, states. I, I, I think we all do. 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, so that's stunning. I, I do also want to just point out too um, is that one of the things that I think too with with the 2012 cycle that was really important um, was was the pattern with which resources is generated. Is, is really important as well. Um, Candidate-centric fundraising is really important, be, for, particularly for data purposes um, and for field purposes, because it can be spent much more flexibly. Um, and one of the things that you see candidates do is invest a lot more in field infrastructure because they can run them in-house. So um, it wasn't just that, I think, in, in 2012, um, you know, Romney faced a long and protracted primary battle while Obama was sort of running as the incumbent and was being able to, to produce infrastructure. But, you know, the Obama campaign was raising significantly um, uh, more money than the Romney campaign was um, through its candidate organization and had much more flexibility to be able to spend that. Um, um, whereas, again, the Trump team just doesn't seem to have put together any fundraising apparatus at all uh, at this point um, and doesn't really have a lot of cash on hand. I think we should just entertain the possibility that Trump genuinely doesn't care about a lot of those traditional infrastructure elements. But let's say he decides to care about that and build up a lot of the things that we've been discussing. Is it too late? Um. <laughs> That's a great question, right? So, so look, I, and I'll say this, Jody, and and you know, I don't know if you if you will cut this or not, but but <laughs> usually um, when some when a guest says that, that means that I'm going to hear something that I will absolutely keep in because it's going to be good. But go ahead. <laughs> look, I've I've been wrong a million times with this election cycle so far. You and me both, buddy. <laughs> right? If I say that, like building field infrastructure now in a very short amount of time um, is is a really 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 hard task, um, uh, then you know I'll probably be wrong again. So, um, but but what I will say is that you know every month that you have field offices in key battleground states of volunteers and field staffers who are continually making voter contacts, who are organizing, um, who are creating more volunteers to then go out and organize their own neighborhoods, who are going door to door to register voters, um, who are going door to door to figure out who is persuadable, who are going door to door ultimately to. Um, to raise money um, and to help turn people out when the t when it matters. Um it, that's an advantage, right? So it's hard to look at, at where we are right now and say that um, Trump and the GOP are going to be behind anywhere where Hillary Clinton is going to be. Um, and that this will just compound itself because, you know, with early voting, a lot of states will start um, right. voting well before November. And and what does that mean? Well, you need an infrastructure in place to start banking votes. Um, and what matters there is, is field organization. I think 
again, that's one of the things you saw when, when Ted Cruz was successful, having folks on the ground, building that infrastructure, starting to organize early on um, was, was really important uh, in terms of turnout. And I suspect we'll see the same for November for the Democrats. Right. And of course, we'll say we, he just said Ted Cruz is successful, but he's not the one who's going to be the nominee. So you never know. You're exactly right. Repeating over and over and over. Um, that is right. So one last question, which is, uh, you know, this is the third time we've we've talked and we're going to keep talking. Um, but other than tuning into our conversations and reading your book, like what else should people be tracking? What should they be reading in, t- in terms of trying to get a sense of of this data world and tracking kind of how it's playing out in real time with this election. Yeah. So, so my two favorite books on this subject, and, you know, I love to plug them are, uh, Etan Hirsch, uh, his book, Hacking the Electorate, um, which is really a wonderful look at, um, uh, both the, the potential as well as the limitations of data, um, as well as some of the very real implications it raises, um, for things like privacy and governance. Um, and I think it's just a must read. Etan has worked with political data from the inside. Um, and I don't think there's anyone better from, from that perspective on this. Um, the second book I would really recommend to you is uh, Rasmus Nielsen's uh, Ground Wars, um, which is a wonderful sociological view of just how messy data is um, on the ground as he followed around volunteers who tried to generate it. So, you know, when we talk about data, we tend to often sort of be in awe and say, wow, it's all revealing of the electorate. But as, as Rasmus sort of shows that, um, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? Like that oftentimes when people Mm -hmm. knock on doors, they have stunted conversations with people. They're told to go away. Volunteers have to make decisions about how to classify certain things. In short, the world is a lot more messy than what ends up in a voter database somewhere. Um, And I think that's ultimately very comforting for democracy um, because it does suggest that exactly what you said earlier, like we're not simply under the sway of the finely crafted um, uh, persuasion message. We're not simply being told what to do and manipulated or micromanaged um, that oftentimes, you know, data is messy and uncertain. And at, at its best, it provides an, a way of campaigns to orient themselves, a way to spend resources more effectively. But it's not the be all and the end all um, uh, to electoral politics, and it never will be. All right, Daniel Kreese, thanks uh, again for doing this. And we will keep talking, but this is always fun. And I will plug your book, uh, Prototype <laughs> Politics, and it's... Um, you can pre-order it now. It comes out in July, right? But people can get copies now. I think you could just say you could get it now. I mean, it's it seems to be shipping. Great. So I think you're good to say that. Well, congratulations on that. And thanks again. Thank you, Jody. This is fun. I've linked to Daniel's book and a few of the other pieces we discussed on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. And you can also listen, of course, to parts one and two of A History of Political Data there as well. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Thanks to Tony Chow and Lucina Malesio, our intern, for all your help. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. There's a link to download the theme to this podcast on our website. My name is Jody Abergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. 
Another reminder that all the 538 podcasts are now in the Google Play Store, so track them down there. If you're an Android user, you can also find us in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. No matter where you listen, leave us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Thank you.